0: Good morning, Christ Community Church. Would you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can meet this Sunday morning and worship you. And I thank you for this wonderful book of Acts that we've been going through. And Lord, I've been impressed with the incredible um, dedication that the Apostle Paul has To the worldwide church not just one community uh, but to building up the Saints everywhere and I pray that you would expand our own vision and that that we might be uh, a church that has allegiance to all of our brothers and sisters and to the gospel to the resurrected Christ and that that would apply to many um, many other venues many other locations we just thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in the family of God. Would you use your word and apply it this morning? We thank you for this opportunity. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, when we secured the financing on our original loan for our building, I was in a meeting with several others from our church body along with the representative of the financial institution. The finance man said something that I interpreted as very different from previous communications, and I let my feelings uh, be known, and I voiced very pointed criticism of him and the company. I wish I had kept my mouth shut. (laughs) Uh, Whatever the reasons for my diatribe, uh, the man was calm, and he answered my questions. The interesting thing is is that we have maintained a very close relationship uh, for over 15 years and uh, I am very grateful for that, even though he lives in another state. And uh, I'm also grateful that at least one of us was objective at that moment. Um, I later understood his point. And I was able to achieve uh, that information by just sitting and listening. And I wish that I would have listened a lot more than speaking uh, initially. And while the manner of how we speak is important, it's not near as important as our heart at the moment that we are encountering somebody. Uh, Pascal said this, when we are too young, we do not judge well so also when we are too old. If we do not think enough or if we think too much on any matter, we get obstinate and infatuated about it. If one considers one's work immediately after having done it, one is entirely prepossessed in its favor. Now, if I were to add anything to Pascal's list, uh, I might say that when we're unwilling to listen, uh, when we're hard-headed in our opinion, uh, when we're unwilling to engage or talk, when one is avoiding other people or when one is making definitive statements without wanting to hear the facts, these are signs of what Pascal called being infatuated with one's own opinion. I think an honest look at ourself is what is needed in times like this. I wish that that would have happened with all the parties associated with the Apostle Paul in Acts 24. In the case of the Jews attacking the Apostle Paul, their motive was evident. We find Paul in another confrontation after being detained in the temple for a a false accusation that he allowed a Gentile in an unauthorized area. Paul is now before Felix. He's a Roman governor. He's also hearing, uh, Felix is hearing, from a lawyer who apparently was hired by the Sanhedrin, a group of Jews, kind of the Supreme Court, a group of of those guys, and the high priest traveled to Caesarea to uh, testify against Paul In front of Felix, this is where we pick up our story. Acts 24.1. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down. And some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now, as I said, Ananias was the high priest. He was appointed by Herod. You might remember him as uh, having Paul slapped after Paul was falsely accused in the temple. He would eventually meet an untimely fate, Ananias would, by being assassinated. We can assume, though, that Ananias traveled gladly to Caesarea to create more trouble for Paul, along with the Jewish uh, officials And again, these were probably members of the Sanhedrin. Now they are led by Tertullus, who is a well-spoken lawyer that is put in this job to prove Paul's guilt before Felix. This austere group was hoping that their high standing would matter in swaying Felix to convict Paul. The problem was that Felix was no great lover of Jews in general and was responsible for quelling many Jewish rebellions. We pick it up in verse 2. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, being Paul, saying, since through you uh, we enjoy much peace, now he's talking to Felix directly before he accuses Paul, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made to this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude, but to detain you no further, I beg you to your kindness to hear us briefly, and then he gets on to accusing Paul. Now, Tertullus would make a very good snake oil salesman by his flattery and total disregard for the truth. He starts his speech off with calling Felix as one who's known for peace, foresight, excellence, and reformations. The facts are that Felix had a record of accusing others and having them crucified, especially when they had any part to do with insurrections. This created even more hatred for him among Jews and an ever-increasing number of rebellions against Rome. This is what he was actually known for. He was known for his greed, his cruelty, his brutality, total disregard for the rights of his subjects. The rule of Felix was short compared to other governors of Rome and he was eventually removed from office by Nero. Tertullus cared not if what he was saying was truthful. He simply wanted the favor of Felix to see Paul charged. We pick it up in verse 5. For we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sects of the Nazarene. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Now, Tertullus was like many news channels today. Uh, His speech was inflammatory, emotional, and accusative without providing valid evidence. But it made for great entertainment. His charges can be distilled into three areas. Paul was personally a curse on society, number one. Number two, he was religiously profane. And number three, he was politically subversive. This would especially, this last point, would especially be of interest to Rome as it tried to spread Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He calls Paul a plague. He's saying Paul was literally a pestilence upon society. He was altogether injurious to others. He then advances by calling him Achan to a world terrorist, worldwide terrorist. Causing unrest among all the Jews in all the world. He then seeks to put him in the category of insignificance by calling him a ringleader of the category uh, of the sect of Nazarenes. Now, sect means an offshoot or a cult. Remember the word of Nathaniel in John 1 46. Can anything good? come out of Nazareth, Nazareth being a a small, insignificant, looked down upon town. It reminds me of an episode that Janet and I had about 20 years ago, attending an event at Hammond's Hall, when we ran into a man who had experience in our church, who had previously been confronted in our church by his numerous extramarital affairs. Uh, he was introducing to us one of his wives and he said, this is Kevin Short. And then he he says to me, now, uh, tell me again the name of that little church that you're a part of. (laughs) Now, never mind that he was also a former staff member. He knew the answer to this. It was his way of trying to demonstrate my insignificance. This is what Tertullus was doing, saying Paul is the leader of a cult out of Nazareth and trying to constantly create trouble. Tertullus then says, Paul tried to profane the temple. Profane means to disrespect what is holy. The Jewish temple was the geographic presence of God to the Jews. The original charge was that Paul brought a Gentile into a holy part of the temple, and that meant certain death. The Romans actually gave the Jews the freedom to have somebody executed who went into this part of the temple. Now, Tertullus actually changes the charge by saying Paul tried to profane the temple instead of actually doing it. I mean, before the Jews accused him of actually doing it, and now Tertullus is saying he tried to do it. People often forget the details of their lies. Tertullus told Felix to examine Paul himself, and he would be able to substantiate these charges. It's another way of saying just give him enough rope, and he's going to hang himself. And then Tertullus says, Listen to the other elders of the Jews, and they're going to be objective. And so the Jews hoped that this cadre of false witnesses would mean Paul's demise. We get to verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So Paul does not flatter Felix, rather he recognizes the virtue of his position and experience, hoping that this would make him eligible to recognize the political and religious forces at work and sift through the difference between truth and a lie. I'm sure after the crowd, the Jewish crowd in the temple, rushed to kill him, after a near flogging by the Jews, Paul was certainly happy to have a time to defend himself and have someone truly listen. Verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Now Paul is first addressing the idea that he was the one causing riots in Jerusalem. Not only is it ridiculous that he was doing this in the whole world, but it's also unlikely that he did this in Jerusalem itself, given the shortness of the time that he was there. Paul makes the point that I was only there for 12 days, and that's hardly enough time to gather Jews around and to create a riot. Paul was not preaching. He was not arguing with anyone. He did not go into the the synagogue to uh, dispute. Rather, remember, That that this was a time in which Paul came peacefully, submitted himself as a Jew to make a sacrifice. And in addition, there is no mass media going on here. This is first century. There's no social networking. There's no texting or email. And part of this time, Paul was held captive. How in the world would he have enough time to organize a rebellion against Rome? This is completely far-fetched. Witnesses could instead verify that Paul was there to worship and participate in the Nazarite vow. Now, the prosecutors didn't have one witness or piece of evidence to support their charge. I mean, where are the other people who have assisted in this worldwide terrorism? What kind of evidence did his accusers bring to this trial to substantiate their charges. Motive, method, opportunity, proof of the alleged crime, these simply did not exist. Verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves uh, accept, And there will be a resurrection of both, the just and the unjust. So I will always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now the Jewish argument hinged on the idea that Paul was working against Judaism, defaming the law, desecrating the prophets of old. Paul says, if I am guilty of anything... It is in following the way, which was a moniker used elsewhere in Acts for the followers of Christ. But here's the truth of the matter, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He's not in contradiction or against the law. Paul is saying he believes all the things written in the law of Moses and the book of the prophets, indicating that he's consistent with the truth of the Jewish heritage. He entered the temple to make this very point. For Jewish seekers and believers in any age, Paul's confession establishes that Christianity is not a betrayal, but a fulfillment of the old testament faith. In Acts 26:22, Paul said, "To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets of Moses said would come to pass." Paul then addresses a central theme to Judaism that God will hold each and every person personally responsible in a judgment. Now, a judgment of God is common to many religions, that idea. But Christianity is unique in that it's judged by a personal God, and this will exist in a personal God who exists in eternity. And this judgment will incur upon us consequences for our personal selves that will continue to exist in eternity. And this is revealed by the revelation of the Bible. So this personal relationship with God, this personal judgment is something unique. This brings up the point of because there are differing views of the afterlife corresponding to many different religions doesn't that mean that we can all conclude that all theories are equally plausible or implausible? Some say, you know, each person has their own view of the afterlife, and we have to respect each and give them equal credibility. And such a view is based on the idea that since we don't have any empirical certainty of the afterlife or scientific proof that is accessible to our five senses, it all comes down to blind faith. I submit to you that some beliefs have more evidence than others. Therefore, some views are worth considering and others are not. Let's say that I am needing knee surgery and I personally have no empirical certainty of the outcome. I'm not sure how it's gonna uh, turn out, but also uh, I've never experienced a knee surgery before. I have no firsthand knowledge of this. I'm gonna have to trust someone to perform the surgery. Now, that doesn't mean that any choice I make about who's gonna do the surgery is plausible. For instance, I don't pick a name at random from the phone book. I don't go ask my plumber to do knee surgery. I hopefully go to a person who is best qualified to do the job and has a proven track record of success. Then I would put my trust in that person. The choice to trust any random person to operate is a step of blind faith. The choice to trust an experienced surgeon is evidence-based faith. And in the same way, all views of the afterlife have to submit their own evidence, and some don't have it, and I submit to you one does have evidence. I want to submit to you that no other worldview or religion can come close to what the Christian worldview has to offer. Why? Because when it comes to the afterlife, consider this. That I can look at hundreds of prophecies that are fulfilled in the Bible that separate it from other religious books. So if it's reliable about the prophecies, isn't it reasonable to assume that it also speaks truth about the future or our judgment in the afterlife? Secondly, I see the evidence... For the resurrected Christ that provides a basis for believing his claim about a judgment. In other words, wouldn't I consider Christ to be an expert on the afterlife since he actually was buried, died, and rose again three days later? His words might mean something, right? I mean, Jesus did say whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. He also said in Matthew 25, 46 that there's going to be eternal punishment for some and others are considered righteous and enjoy life. Thirdly, what the Bible says about our enjoyment of eternal life is based on the grace of God through Christ and not a works-based performance. And I want to suggest to you that this third point shows the uniqueness of, of Christianity in its thoughts about the afterlife, right? I want to read for you one catechism of a work-based system. It says this, We can merit for ourselves the graces needed for sanctification and the attainment of eternal life. We can merit for ourselves sanctification and the attainment of eternal life. That is not the message of Christ. That's a man-made system. With Christ, get this, listen to this. We have the opportunity to make a decision that will positively impact this life and millions of years in eternity. And it's the elders, the Jewish elders, and the high priest who rejected this grace. Paul says, I have a good conscience. He has a good conscience before God because he worshiped the God of the Hebrews, followed the way, believed in the law and the prophets, hoped in God, trusted in the resurrection, and lived his life as best he could in obedience to God. That hardly sounds like a rebel terrorist. Verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Remember, Paul came to Jerusalem to help support the saints of Jerusalem who were in a famine, they were in great need. He also paid for the sacrifices of four other men who were concluding their Nazarite vow. Paul is giving verifiable evidence for why he was in Jerusalem, unlike the Asian Jews who gave a completely fabricated charge against Paul. And then to top it off, didn't even show up to testify against him. Verse 21. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. It's a masterful stroke. Paul has put his attention on the central matter. And what is that? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the rub. Paul and the Jews agree that they have a messianic hope that comes from the Old Testament. But what they differ on is whether such a hope is found in Jesus Christ. Paul sees his hope fulfilled in the resurrected Christ. The Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Such matters do not ultimately rest with Rome, and as such is irrelevant to their jurisprudence. I want us to take our cues from Paul and put our attention always on the risen Christ. In a recent interview for Rolling Stone magazine, the 64-year-old musician Sting admits that he spends a lot of time thinking about death. He often stares at a 1962 photo of his boyhood street in Newcastle, England. It's all dust, his parents, his house, the shipyard at the end of the street, and this makes his mood sad and disconsolate. He also thinks about rock music icons who've recently died, like Prince and David Bowie. He says, I'm 64. Most of my life has been lived already. And then, like most of us, when a cultural icon dies, we're children. Because you think, how could he or she die? After performing recently before 100,000 fans in Australia, he spent most of his time alone in a hotel. And it says that he was thinking about having more days behind him than in front of him. Sting, who was raised a Catholic, said, I've been thinking about death since I was a kid. I get a kind of spiritual vertigo. I was brought up in a religious background with ideas of eternity, eternal torment, or eternal heaven. I became obsessed with it, maybe morbid about it. And Sting attempts to face death, by regularly taking a psychedelic drug. He says, I think it's a way of rehearsing the feeling of being dead. Every time I have to work up the courage to do it, you basically face your mortality and it's as if you're dead, out of time. And then he ends it this way and says, there must be a way to die peacefully and welcoming. Well, I'd say to Sting, yes, There is a way to die peacefully and welcoming. There is a way to face judgment, welcoming God's presence. And I'd say this to the rest of humanity, that there's only one hope, and that is found in the faith of the resurrected Christ. That has been Paul's message all of his life since Damascus, and that is our message to you today. Would you pray with me?